Hey, Richard, welcome aboard. Yeah, so I'm so, hoping I can do this. I'm on my phone. Well, I was, was beginning to think we would only have three, uh, myself included, but and Tim, thanks for joining in. Um, we're a little past the time I usually start, and I thought I'd wait just a little bit to see if anybody would join in, but uh, I'm happy to just get us going. And so, smaller crowd, I, I feel a little less compelled to kind of mechanically work my way through what I wanted to cover today. Um, and we could certainly have um, what amounts to more of a conversation about Illich. Um, and I... I will say I started the day today. Uh, I didn't start the day today, but I, uh, earlier in the afternoon, I was listening. I was on the other side of a Zoom webinar, which is um, in some respects nicer than actually giving one. And I was listening to um, a, an, a political theorist who just wrote a book about uh, family. Well, the subtitle of the book was A Defense of the Family, in a competitive age, the title of the book was Little Platoons. And um, I confess that right now the guy's name is escaping me. So I've seen his book mentioned in a, in a handful of places. And um, am I coming through okay? Yes. Yeah, okay, all right. Anyway, so I, I, I thought I'd join in uh, and listen to the conversation. And the the book began actually as an article that – uh, this um, uh, gentleman wrote in the New Yorker uh, in response to some kind of elite school in New England, uh, the, the headmaster sort of announcing that he was going to be instituting some practices uh, to tone down the competitiveness of the school. And then he was sort of surprised by the response that this got from people. Um, and And that kind of set him to thinking about this value of competitiveness um, in in not only in schools, but it, it seems that it's, I haven't read the book, I should say, so I've just listened to him talk. And it seems like he focuses, uh, or at least his conversation focused on, um, on, on the childhood experience, the experience that uh, children have at school and then uh, even into college and beyond. Um, in any case, uh, the all, I say all this just to say that the whole time I'm listening uh, I am afraid I've become this guy. This guy. Um, I, all I can think of is that, um, yeah, Illich, Illich predicted all of this. Uh, <laughs> Illich could have told you it's exactly where we end up in this um, competitively compulsive, um, really dehumanizing environment uh, where from the earliest ages, kids are moved through. Uh, and, and of course, this this is especially relevant to sort of upper income, um, upper middle class or, or upper class families where even uh, entry into the right preschool or it becomes a matter of supposed life and death, right? Uh, but that this, I think, infects even not just the, the upper echelons of society, but um, the, the, this mentality of scarcity, uh, the requirement to go through the right schools in order to even imagine having a shot at life. Um, and the fact that the, the more you do this, the more you you fuel the demand for it, it becomes self-fulfilling. Uh, so I'm listening to this whole thing and thinking, 
Yes, right. So we're, this is this is exactly what happens when when you don't de-establish schools. And I, I didn't uh, comment to that effect. I wanted to say just read Illich. Um, sorry for the Bernie Sanders meme. I couldn't help it the other day. Um, but in any case, the um, the fact that Illich is is sort of sitting on my shoulder as I'm reading about the news, thinking about society, uh, not entering into, but uh, certainly observing debates uh, about the the state of society, I think is useful. And I I hope that um, through this class, some of these concepts and um, critical tools become valuable to you as well. Uh, Because in one respect, what what I realized in in, um, listening to this conversation is that Increasingly, I think people recognize the, the bind that this way of life puts us in. And when it comes down to the question of solutions, however, uh, in, in a sense, I think we still are either we, we were exasperated and there was a, a measure of exasperation between these two very thoughtful, uh, the gentleman interviewing the author and the author, very thoughtful. Uh, and, and, and yielding the fact that, yeah, well, they're not exactly sure what to do. Uh, they're tinkering at the edges as far in, insofar as they have a limited degree of agency, uh, with respect to their own children. Um, but mounting a society wide, uh, response to some of these issues seems sort of baffling. Uh, imagining alternatives, uh, seems you know, almost impossible to do. Uh, and, and of course, Illich told us that as well already in the 1970s in Tools for Conviviality. Um, what I was driving at here is sort of the, um, the inability to even see that maybe the problem is just compulsory education, period, right? Uh, that, that was sort of missing from the conversation. Uh, and so thinking down to that depth uh, of, of the problem the, that, or that layer, uh, foundational layer, upon which the problem is sort of built or has grown out of is one of the things that I think I valued from, from Illich. It doesn't necessarily leave me, um, you know, prepared to lay down a plan of action. Um, and, and, you know, I don't have a, a neat set of, of rules to follow in order. In fact, I think that would be kind of productive. Uh, but nonetheless, to see the problem more clearly is certainly a beginning. Um, and so let me come back to uh, Tools for Conviviality. Um, there's so much here. I realize that this is a book um, that we could have spent the whole class just sort of walking through very carefully. We're not going to do that. I'm not going to pretend to try to do that today either. Um, but there are some key concepts here that we touched on last week. I want to bring them to your attention again. Um, but before doing that, uh, I wanted to say also that this is an, an interesting book in that it, it is uh, an odd blend of dire predictions and uh, a measure of, of hopefulness of, of of hope that there is there is this moment now in which we can seize the opportunity and a certain realization can maybe turn things around as it were. It's, it's the closest. Um, I think uh, David Cayley says this, this is the closest Illich gave to a kind of program for political action um, in his writings, and it. I think Illich generally moves away from. Um, that particular place in his thinking goes on to explore the certainties uh, that characterize the modern mind, the things we take for granted that, that keep us from even imagining these convivial alternatives. Um, but in this book, there is this interesting blend where you're reading some passages and he's saying, if we don't change course, um, these, this is what will happen. And these are the predictions he lays on. They're very dire. And, and some of them, I think, are, are uh, certainly coming to fruition. 
and then also this hope that we might seize the, the moment for for change, for revolutionary change. Uh, it certainly doesn't materialize in 1973. And as we say, here we are now, right? So the key concepts from last week that I wanted to just uh, re- recall, um, if for no other reason that they're very valuable, one is the idea of counterproductivity. And this is this notion that there, there are scales. Um, and I've, I've got the quotes from last week here. I'll refer to them on and off. And I just sent you a few before um, we started today. But this idea that there is this multidimensional balance of human life. Now, within that balance are these various scales for different uh, institutions and tools and, and social arrangements. Uh, and that it is possible to cross a tipping point where, where once you cross it, the institution, the tool, uh, becomes, uh, at first, it, it sort of becomes um, frustrating to its own ends. It doesn't allow the ends to, to which it has set itself to be fulfilled. And then it, it can become downright destructive, uh, a threat to society itself, Illich says. And so this notion of scales, crossing scales over into counterproductivity, uh, I think is a useful one. Uh, the idea of escalation, um, that, that the only logic that dominates uh, sort of the industrial imagination is simply the logic of more. Right. More or faster or more efficiently, uh, more science, new technology to answer the problems of old technology. It's the logic of escalation. Um, and and Illich identified it already in the early 70s. And, and I think if we're attentive to the way um, pundits talk about or scholars talk about or political politicians talk about present problems, you can hear this. You can hear this um, almost with every attempt to address a problem, there's a sense that all we do, all we need is more, a very often it's more of the same. Um, and the, it never occurs, it rarely occurs uh, to these people to think that maybe the alternative or the solution is not more, but less uh, to, to recognize the limits, um, to de-escalate uh, the problem or to find altogether different alternatives. Um, and then there is this, um, this ten, not tension, this, uh, it's not the right word at all, actually, it's complementarity between uh, the theme of conviviality as, as yielding autonomy, personal autonomy, freedom uh, for the individual. Uh, and then at the same time, that that freedom is ordered toward a mutual interdependence. And so uh, at one point, Illich writes, I consider conviviality to be individual freedom realized in personal interdependence and as such as an intrinsic ethical value. And, and part of the problem with uh, industrial society is that it, on the one hand, curtails our personal freedom. Uh, it degrades us into the role of mere consumers, and it de-skills us from the capacities to care for one another. Uh, we, we do not become mutually interdependent. We become in, individually de-skilled, and as a community, we lose the capacity to care for one another and thus increasingly require the very institutions that have put us in this place to begin with. Right. We have the and this is, uh, you know, the sad part of the um, of the nature of the situation we find ourselves in, having come this far down the line. And I should say that um, I sometimes I was born in the 70s. I was born in 1977. So I'll date myself very precisely. And so when I think about the 70s and I, I read the line, you know, you know, the, the, that phrase, the 70s, it doesn't necessarily seem like ancient history. Uh, some of you are older than me. I won't dare say how, old, how much older, but even less so, right? Is it ancient history? But for, for some of the younger, uh, phases among us, the 70s may seem like just sort of ancient history. 
Um, and it, but it, I say all that to say it has been 50 years, nearly 50 years uh, now since Illich wrote this book. Uh, and so a lot of the uh, trend lines have further established themselves a lot. We have gone even further down the path of sort of de-skilling, the loss of uh, the capacity for mutual care. And so these problems have become, in some respects, more entrenched. And so now, um, as I think about the the idea of, okay, so what do we do, right? Uh, as I'm listening to this conversation, to two gentlemen talking about schooling, uh, what do we do? We're in a situation where we we don't have... It, it requires a, a leap of faith to jump into a radical alternative because the whole society is now structured to prevent that um, and to not make and to make that risky and dangerous. At least we certainly have learned to feel that way. And in some respects, because, in fact, we have lost these capacities for mutual care. And so there there's the bind that we find ourselves in. Uh, and then I will uh, just recall one last um line here that I want to read and just uh, I, I don't think I got to it last week so, so we'll kind of move forward just slightly here um, and and this is this idea that people need tools to work with rather than tools to work for them I think that's one of the the nice little um, I think easily comprehensible formulations of what conviviality means a convivial tool is one you work with rather than one that works for you although even that would can require some unpacking but basically it doesn't displace you uh, rather, it empowers you. Uh, think of a lot of the, the contemporary debates about uh, automation and technological unemployment and the choice of, of forms of automation that tend to displace workers. And so what, what Illich would say is we, 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 we're not anti-technology, but we want technology that empowers the individual rather than threatens to displace the individual because work is still valuable, right? Meaningful work, creative work, uh, as I read him, is a, is a kind of essential need for the human person. And so we don't want to strip them of this. Um, you know, we don't want uh, sort of fully all automated luxury communism where we, this is an internet line, right? So where we all sort of sit around and uh, just read poetry all day, right? There's a sense in which we, we require um, and can will flourish when we have meaningful creative work to do, and we want tools that empower us to do this. And he goes on and he says, they need technology to make the most of the energy and imagination that each has, rather than more well-programmed energy slaves. And then, he, and then he says, I believe that society must be reconstructed to enlarge the contribution of autonomous individuals and primary groups to the total effectiveness of a new system of production designed to satisfy, and, and this is a key part I want to focus on, designed to satisfy human needs, which it also determines. And I think this is a fundamental point for Illich. It, it's that it's not only that, that the institutions have de-schooled us, they have taught us what we need. Uh, one fascinating part of the conversation I listened to earlier today is how the author was suggesting that the power of elite colleges is such that they say we want to see more of this in your applications. And all of a sudden, students respond, families respond. They begin to look for the kinds of opportunities that the colleges now uh, or the admissions counselors now say they want and, and all of the other ex ancillary experts that we enlist if you have enough money to help you get into these colleges say, well, this is what they're looking for. Uh, for example, they were talking about the uh, the new trend is the creation of nonprofits. 
You want to see high schoolers who have started their own nonprofits. Um, the idea that I would have started a nonprofit in high school is so absolutely uh, <laughs> beyond my imagining. Uh, but uh, the author shared that uh, he had seen this tweet with a Facebook post of a high schooler. And the, the, the post, or excuse me, the, the tweet is just an image of screenshots of dozens of notifications from his friends about the nonprofits that they have started. Um, and this is in a sort of an elite high school in Southern California. Um, and so the point here is, is that the institution tells you not just what you need, but who you ought to become. And this was a, the point the author makes that there's an image of the subject that is internalized as we aim to be accepted by these institutions, right? So we are, we, they form us in their image. They tell us who we ought to be, how we ought to live, what is important, what is valuable. They, in some respects, then to get back to this quote, define our needs. Um, and we can't then begin to imagine to live without what they promise to provide us. And so here's why Illich says that we need um, systems of production designed to satisfy the human needs, which it also determines. That is that we determine what, in fact, it is that we need, rather than allowing these institutions to determine for us what we need, and then offering, of course, the very thing they've taught us to desire. And then uh, he completes this thought by saying, in fact, the institutions of industrial society do just the opposite. As the power of machines increases, the role of persons more and more decreases to that of mere consumers. And language is an important thing for Elish. In fact, towards the tail end of this, um, he talks about the importance of recovering uh, a convivial use of language. But, but if you notice, one of the telling things about uh, contemporary discourse is the degree to which we are referred to when we are talked about um, as, as members of the American, um, of American society as consumers, right? We are rarely referred to as citizens or as persons, uh, but when we are grouped together, we are grouped together by the label of consumers. And this is essentially what we are best at, right? What we have been trained to do is, to, is trained to be consumers of services, of products, of commodities. Uh, and, and, this is, I think, one of the um, ways in which Illich, I think, has been certainly proven proven right. So let me pause there for a moment. Uh, and again, as I kind of rehash those ideas from last week, to just ask if there are any questions or comments that you may have um, or anything you want to sort of throw in at this juncture. And if not, then I'll just kind of barrel along. Mike, I, I've got lots of questions. <laughs> I mean, I... I do find, well, I find Illich helpful. Um, it, it is often hard to quite understand the distinctions here. Um, what's the dif- difference between practices of interdependence and practices that are, um, uh, uh, what's the term I'm going for, when you, when you sort of off- Give, give work away, you outsource it um, and and become de-skilled in the process. Yeah. I mean, am I, am I practicing interdependence or outsourcing if I have a plumber come to my house and work on something or roofers come and work on something? Um, am I practicing interdependence if I shop at wards, but not if I shop at Publix? I, um, I, I do I do have a hard time with the distinctions that he's making and and understanding what they would really amount to um, 
or, or how to quite apply his wisdom. Mm-hmm. So one facet of this is that, of course, we have, we have built systems that uh, require us to hire experts to sort of address our, our the needs that are a result of that system. So um, I think even in 1970, Illich is writing about cars and how um, cars are built such that it requires the expertise of the mechanic uh, to to fix the car. Uh, and, and, and yet I have sometimes, you know, sort of described how, uh, you know, as a child, my father might have spent a Saturday morning trying to fix a car, some aspect of the car, you know, in the early 80s. Um, and so that even there, there's a, a degree to which um, an interested party can sort of learn to to work with the machinery and, and so become self-reliant uh, on that on that capacity. But to the degree that cars have been computerized today, it becomes even harder to work on that. So you require, you build systems that are so intricate, uh, so specialized, that you require the help of experts to to solve. Now, in a, in a more positive sense, I want to read actually one of the quotes that I have pulled out for today. Uh, and I think this will hopefully answer the heart of the question. And so it's in the hand that I gave you today, and it's in the last, it's the last quote on the first page. And here Illich says, people have a native capacity for healing, consoling, moving, learning, building their houses, and burying their dead. All right, so these are these are practices, for example, that, that as Illich sort of thinks about the societies he's familiar with, about traditional human history and cultures, he says human beings have a native capacity for healing, consoling, moving, learning, building their houses, burying their dead. Each of these capacities meets a need the means for the satisfaction of these needs are abundant so long as they depend primarily on what people can do for themselves with only marginal dependence on commodities. And, and I think it's actually a key line with only marginal dependence on commodities because it does remind me to say that it, I think Illich is rather, rather circumspect throughout Tools for Conviviality where he says, it's not that I'm saying there, ought, there is no place for industrial production. What he is saying is that it needs to be balanced with other forms of production. In other words, it needs to sort of be kept in check. And he recognizes the need for manufacturing. He is not advocating a return uh, to uh, a kind of medieval lifestyle. He, he, at various points, specifically says that he, what he's calling for is a modern society uh, that has modern tools, but those tools are convivial tools, not industrial. Um, or at least that there is a balance between the industrial tools and the convivial tools in any given society. And then he goes on in that same line, in that same quote to say, these activities have use value without having been given exchange value, right? So uh, in economic uh, jargon, that there are various kinds of value that might attach to something, right? So use value is, is the value that it has as, as far as it is useful to someone, Right. Uh, exchange value is what it sells for on the, in the marketplace, right? The value that it might return you in cash, right? When you, you exchange cash for this service or this thing. Um, and then he says their exercise at the service of man is not considered labor. So in other words, here's th- this set of practices. Um, and, and each of them, of course, are very expansive, right? Healing. Uh, what does that entail? Uh, do we do it? Do we do away altogether with the professional class of doctors? Uh, or is it rather a matter of claiming back certain functions uh, of self-care 
that are well within our, our, our human capacity, uh, and, and our capacity not only to care for ourselves, but also to care for our family members and our neighbors. Likewise with consoling and moving and learning, uh, even building our, their houses, right? So, you know, this is one of these parts of, I think, a village's work that strikes us as being, um, just wholly foreign, right? The idea that we would build our houses. Um, and, and yet, right, you know, tra- traditionally speaking, right, you don't have to go that far back, uh, to find an era or, or you know, I should say you don't have to go that far back or go that far away from American society to find places where traditionally homes were, were built. They weren't the kinds of homes that we have, uh, but they were nonetheless built, um, by the community or by the families. And even this last one, which is really striking to me, um, and, and which may be, oddly enough, the, the, the one that seems to me easiest to sort of wrap our heads around, burying their dead. Um, and so the, the idea that we no longer know how to do any of these things very well for ourselves, that we immediately default to the enlistment of, um, of an expert class in order to, or a certified class in order to meet these needs, um, I think is part of what, uh, Illich is, is aiming at. So it does not necessarily mean that we never call for someone who is a certified expert in a field, say, to help us with this, that, or the other thing, but that, that we have ceded too much ground. Um, and, you know, it's, I think, a very typical sort of millennial male complaint that they don't know how to fix anything. Right. There's a, there's a, um, a complete and utter dependency, um, that we have where we all, we require a commodity or an expert or service provider to do almost everything for us, right? It's a sort of panic that people imagine setting on when they imagine themselves in a post-apocalyptic society and, and realize they wouldn't even know where to begin to provide food for themselves, right? Um, and so it's, it's a kind of, uh, a, a state of utter dependency that has emerged where we become merely consumers and know how to do hardly anything for ourselves. At least this is how I, I, I read him. Um, and so I'm not sure if that clarifies um, matters for you, uh, for you, Richard, but I, I do often think that it is a, a, a matter of, of scales and, and where we have crossed the line um, and, and what balance we have struck between what we can do for ourselves, what we commit to do for one another, and what we require others to do for us on the basis of, of, of pay, right? Yeah. Does that, does this make sense? It, it makes sense to me up to a point, but when you spoke about food, uh, there's a, a basic requirement, uh, daily, and most of us, um, don't have a really good grasp of how to do that, but right. it's not a difficult task to learn and could be learned by just a short apprenticeship. And yet the time involved and the place to uh, grow those, those foods is, is not widely available to right. most folks. So it, it liberates you to, to concentrate on other aspects of life, maybe the arts or the sciences or, or, uh, healing, uh, something that would have that exchange value. Right. I think right. what, what goes awry is the fact that we place, um, 
inordinate value on certain of those skills, and then they they get uh, assigned an economic value that makes us um, desperate to find the the means to make the money to have our car fixed or to um, have our appendix taken out when it's infected. Those things, um, we can't do those for ourselves. We have to have somebody skilled to do that for us. Right. And and I should say, too, to to clarify, it isn't the case that, you know, just as Wendell Berry doesn't want everybody to be farmers, right? It's not that Illich is saying everybody ought to be sort of intimately involved in the, I was particularly struck by the, the, your phrase, Tim, about assigning monetary value to something. We'll, we'll get to this, I think, in maybe in a couple of weeks, but Illich did spend a considerable amount of time after this in the early 80s and mid-80s thinking about um, what he called shadow work. Uh, and this is sort of what we would sort of think of as unpaid labor um, that is required to make the economy work. Um, uh, some of this often fall into women in a household, for example. Um, and interestingly, Illich wanted to preserve what, what he ended up, I think, using the word vernacular skills uh, to, to capture, which were pro- to protect some of the things that we do for ourselves from the idea of being commoditized or, or being simply another form of wage labor, right? And so occasionally in some leftist circles, you hear about, uh, you know, recently about the talk of wanting to compensate, um, you know, mothers for the, the unpaid labor of raising their children. Um, and on the one hand, that sort of stems from a recognition of the value of that work, but the fact that we want to immediately assign a monetary value I think for, for Illich would seem as a dangerous move, right? And as an inability to recognize the value of labor apart from assigning it a cash value. And then it just becomes sort of integrated into uh, the economy itself with all of its sort of destructive and competitive uh, tendencies. But that, again, we might return to that uh, a little bit later and have a little bit more time to develop that. Any other thoughts or comments or questions about any of this, uh, about any of this at this point? I want to reiterate the degree to which I think Illich is inviting us, again, not to tinker uh, at the edges of our problems, right, but to confront very deeply, right, very deep-rooted assumptions about what we think human flourishing requires or what we think it means to, um, you know, in the classical sense, to be happy. Right, to live meaningful, fulfilling human lives. Um, how do we achieve that? And what I'm, what I'm struck by at various points is, is how I think what Illich and others have identified is that the way in which we, the, the way we've described human flourishing to ourselves or, or the stories we have told ourselves as a society about what it means to flourish, what it means to live a good life actually undermine the very possibility of achieving those things. Um, and so, you know, if, and I'm going to turn the blinds away from myself here, I'm sorry. If we imagine, for example, that, that the good life is a life in which we have greater and greater access to, to luxury goods, um, there's an, ins- there, there's an insatiability that then, um, kicks in and a, a competitiveness, even with regards to the relative uh, 
value of the goods I attain compared to my to what my neighbor is able to attain that leaves us ever striving for more and never satisfied. Right? And that's one example. And so the the mode of, of life, I think that Illich is encouraging us to to value, to rediscover. So he uses terms, um, for example, like, oh, where does he have it here? I actually have one of these quotes. The sober joy of life in this voluntary, though relative poverty, which lies within our grasp. He talks about joyful austerity at one point, right? Um, it's it's a rec- the recognition that, that less may be more. This is a cliche. I, I'm almost hesitant to use it. And there's there are others uh, in Illich's own time. I think of uh, of Schumacher, who wrote a relatively well-known little book called "Small Is Beautiful," um, that sort of argued um, for for the case that sometimes we we have to imagine that that less is actually what we need and would be happy with, right? That there's a mode of life, a way of living where we we become more autonomous, we gain greater freedom, we have greater direction over what we do. Uh, we are allowed to, to work creatively, uh, although in, a, in perhaps a limited way, for ourselves and for our neighbors and our families. Um, and we, we are not surrounded with luxury items or services, but we, we are nonetheless happy and satisfied. Um, there was an old bit, uh, I have this in, in my mind. I, I think it's now verboten to mention his name, but, but, uh, Louis C.K., the comedian back about seven years ago, had this bit on a, one of the late night talk shows about how everything is amazing and nobody is happy. I don't know if you've seen this, right? So he goes on and essentially what he was talking about, he, he talks about how, you know, he's on an airplane and he has Wi-Fi access. This is right when sort of that became a thing. And so he's thinking, here I am traveling inter- internationally. I'm in the air. I'm flying. He makes a big deal about this in his comedic style. And he says, I can connect to the internet. I can talk to people. Everything is amazing and nobody is happy. Um, and so this is, you know, there's, there's a, a part of us that may be tempted to sort of agree. Yeah. What's wrong with people? Why aren't they happy? But, but maybe the answer is, is that happiness doesn't lie in the ability to fly internationally and have constant connectivity, right? Um, that's something else we, we've, we've displaced ha- our ideal of happiness onto a realm where it can never actually be found. Um, and, and the, this idea that nobody's happy, I think though, is uh, a genuine diagnosis of the situation. I think we're plagued by frustration. Uh, we're plagued by anxiety. Uh, we're plagued by mental health issues. Uh, we, we are, but even, you know, in COVID times, you know, by historical standards, a materially prosperous, a historically materially prosperous society. And, and yet almost, um, to the same degree, unhappy, uh, living in precarity, um, always feeling as if we're missing something that will make our lives better. And so I think what Illich is, is asking us to, to analyze is, is why is that the case? Right. And, and could it be that the path we have marked out as the path of happiness, um, the, with the securement of goods and, and, and greater services and greater experience and more and more efficient, um, that that 
somehow actually is, is undermining the very thing we, we claim to be seeking. Now, I've, I've harped on that a little bit and tried to kind of explain that dynamic in a couple of different ways in our time here today, because it has been on my mind that I think it is, in some respects, w- one of the fundamental insights that I take that is so helpful here. Um, so on, on that note, then, let me, um, let me, for example, read that whole paragraph from which I took just a, a line, and I don't think we got to this last week. Um, so this is in the handout from last week. It's on the second page, and it's the, the second quote there that begins with the, the present world. The present world is divided into those who do not have enough and those who have more than enough, those who are pushed off the road by cars and those who drive them. One, one of the features, I should say, that, that Illich identified as, as a necessary consequence of an industrially ordered society and industrial institutions is, is what we would think of as inequality today. Um, what he would, uh, I think what he calls uh, polar, the polarization of society in the book, right? Um, that the, the poor get poorer and then get a kind of second order psychological poverty dumped on top of them. And those who have increasingly get, uh, but yet at the same time remain uh, remarkably unhappy, even with the more that they have. And so he goes on, he says here, the have-nots are miserable and the rich, the rich anxious to get more. A society whose members know what is enough might be poor, but its members would be equally free. Men with industrially distorted minds cannot grasp the rich texture of personal accomplishments within the range of modern, though limited tools. Let me read that line again. Men with industrially distorted minds, in other words, whose imagination has been warped so that they can't imagine an alternative to what industrial society offers them, um, cannot grasp the rich texture of personal accomplishments within the range of modern, though limited tools, what you could do with modern, although maybe not industrial tools. There is no room in their imagination for the qualitative change that the acceptance of a stable state industry would mean, a society in which members are free from most of the multiple restraints of schedules and therapies now imposed for the sake of growing tools. Much less do most of our contemporaries experience the sober joy of life in this voluntary though relative poverty. One of the, again, I refer to this interview today because it, it, it was striking. Uh, the author talked about how actually it was the interviewer who was, uh, himself an SAT, uh, prep instructor a decade ago in a very wealthy, uh, county in, in uh, Connecticut. And so he talked about how it was, it was all his students were, were so active and had so many things going on uh, and were parts of so many different organizations and had so many different initiatives going because they were trying to build that well-rounded uh, resume for their applications for these elite institutions. And, and then he offhand says, and of course they were all in therapy. They were all in therapy because of the demands being made upon them uh, because of the kind of life that they are leading in order to achieve this. And, and this is um, again, made me think of, uh, of lines like this in Illich, right? Uh, that, that we are free from most of the multiple restraints of schedules and therapies now imposed for the sake of growing tools, right? I, I know no family as unhappy as the family who is exhausted by the, by the unforgiving schedule of activities that they have enrolled their adolescents in from club sports 
to music lessons, to dance lessons, to theater, to volunteerism, uh, to say nothing of the foundation of your own nonprofit. Um, and, and family life is wholly distorted by it. Nobody is happy in the whole routine, all right? But they are convinced that this is the path, right? That, that will lead them to success and happiness and satisfaction. And, of, and, and, um, not surprisingly, right? They are, they are mastered by these two very familiar, um, uh, dynamics, the, the, the tyranny of schedules, right? The tyranny of schedules and then the need for the therapies that we require when we choose to live in this way. Um, I mean, it's absolutely striking. And maybe I'm, I could just be the only one here who sort of sees the, the, the remarkable, um, way in which literature's language sort of draws out is happening before our eyes, what many of us might have ourselves been subject to, but not seen with the, with the I think, the clarity that his his diagnosis places on it. Um, and and so what what he is you know trying to coax us to do is to imagine that there is a better way, right? That there is a a a better way that's better for the environment. It is better for us, right? It is better for our communities. It is better for our families. But we, we seem to lack the imagination to imagine that. Or, or we have, it's been so long since we've had a taste of those satisfactions that we no longer believe that they would in fact satisfy us. Um, again, that's, that's my own way of putting it. Let me, um, skip to one more line, paragraph that I had inserted for today, which I think really, again, drives home this, um, this point. It's the second paragraph, and I'll actually I'll read the first and then the second from today's handout. Um, Illich says, he begins the second half of the book by saying, the human equilibrium is open. It is capable of shifting within flexible but finite parameters. You, humans can adapt. It's a remarkable feature of, of humanity that we are able to adapt. And he says, people can change, but only within bounds. In contrast, the present industrial system is dynamically unstable. It is organized for indefinite expansion and the concurrent unlimited creation of new needs, which in an industrial environment soon become basic necessities. Mm-hmm. What I hear Illich saying here is that, you know, it, 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 we can't adapt. We don't want a, a complete stasis. Illich says somewhere else in this book that, um, you know, a completely unchanging society could be as damaging as one that changes too quickly, Right. Uh, and so it's not that Illich is saying we should never have change. We can't adapt. But he's saying the rate of change that industrial society imposes, and which I think has been doubled down on by the advent of digital tools, that rate of change um, is inhumane. It never allows for the human being who is an adaptable animal to sort of catch up with the changes, right? Um, this is, you know, I, I've talked about this in certain terms in terms in terms of saying you know in the in the early 60s uh or in the late 60s i should say it became fashionable to sort of talk about the um the generation gap that opened up between the the elders you know and and the you know college age or adolescents um you know the slogan don't trust anybody over 30 for example um and so now i would sort of be tempted to talk about the micro generation gap right the fact that maybe for some of you, your, your, your sibling, which is, who may just be five years younger than you, is as unintelligible to you as a teenager would have been to a parent in the 1960s. Because the, the rate of change of cultural milieu is shifting so rapidly. 
And so he goes on then, and this is the, the paragraph I was going to aim at here, that the demands made by tools on people become increasingly costly. The rising cost of fitting man to the service of his tools is reflected in the ongoing shift from goods to services in overall production. And Illich is writing uh, during the time where economists were identifying the, the rise of the service economy. So he, he says, increasing manipulation of man becomes necessary to overcome the resistance of his vital equilibrium to the dynamic, grow, uh, dynamic of growing industries. It takes the form of educational, medical, and administrative therapies. Education turns out competitive consumers. This is a, this was written all over, uh, the conversation with this author today, right? That this, this is essentially what we have become through the educational system, competitive consumers. Medicine keeps them alive in the engineered environment they have come to require. And so this gets at Illich's later critique of medicine, right? That part of its function and the reason we require it is because we have built a, a, a society that is fundamentally unhealthy for us. And so instead of questioning the basic premises, we simply deploy the, um, the, the, the medicines we need to sort of survive in it. Uh, one microcosmic example of this is of um, Amazon, um, oh, what's, what are they called? Their uh, fulfillment centers installing aspirin dispensers on the wall, right? So, so you create a, a fundamentally dehumanizing sort of work environment where today I was just reading an article where they're designing lights to sort of show um, people on the assembly line where to pick up the next thing to sort of eliminate one more sort of microsecond. One employee talked about this in terms of re, re, uh, eliminating the micro rests that he was able to sort of grab. And so you, you want to regimentize people in a, an environment that is, again, fundamentally destructive of their well-being, but you quickly medicalize it just so that they can keep going, right? So here, just pop an aspirin real quick so you can keep working. And that's just a microcosmic example, I would say, of the overall milieu that we've built for ourselves. And then he goes on, he says, medicine keeps them alive in an engineered environment they have come to require. Bureaucracy reflects the necessity of exercising social control over people who do meaningless work. Um, and it, it, so a part of my French, but there is a, um, a recent, uh, well, actually David Graeber, I think he passed away as a sociologist, sociologist who coined the term bullshit jobs and identified how many of the jobs that we strive to grab hold of, um, essentially are, are jobs that don't satisfy, right? They, they amount to the sort of meaningless or menial tasks, um, white collar cubicle work, right? And now, of course, we would sort of die for that kind of security, which is, isn't even available to us. Um, and, and so we do meaningless work. We feel kind of anime internally. And so this creates social tension. And so bureaucracy is deployed to sort of, um, manage and to exercise social control over these people who do meaningless work. And then he says the parallel increase in the cost of the defense of new levels of privilege through military police and insurance measures reflects the fact that in a consumer society, there are inevitably two kinds of slaves, the prisoners of addiction and the prisoners of envy. And this is one of these lines in Illich where I feel like, um, wow, okay, uh, if, if the phrase, right, mic drop was current at the time, I think that this would be appropriate at this juncture. Um, and, and the rhetorical flourish is there, uh, evidently, but I think it, it, it lands its, um, it hits the target. And so I think, for example, again, the dynamic I described earlier, 
um, where, where the wealthy, those who have means, uh, what might be described as prisoners of envy, because they will never have quite enough because there will always be someone else who has a little bit more, right? This dynamic of, uh, you know, in the 1950s, keeping up with the Joneses or whatever, right? So, uh, they're, they're prisoners of envy, prisoners of addiction. Um, and in that addiction, I think we should read not only addicted to drugs, right? Um, but various forms of, of, of addiction. So I'll pause there and maybe leave us with, um, with five minutes for discussion. I think I hit the, the excerpts here that I wanted to especially sort of focus on. And I feel, I don't know, maybe it was the espresso and the coffee I just had. This was a little, had a little bit more of a rant like quality, uh, than previous classes. Um, but, um, yeah. I jotted, I jotted in the margin there about the two kinds of slaves. How did we become slaves? Why are we complicit in this? And I, maybe when we figure that out, we will be able to um, fight back against that system. I think it's this, this uh, myth that we should be constantly growing, uh, expanding. And and if we can get our uh, heads around that, that that's just a dumb idea. Cancer is unlimited growth. Right. uh, That, that we don't have to become slaves. We are complicit in this to a degree. Yeah, Tim, I think you're right. and, And, you know, earlier, I think I read a line where he talks about growth mania. Um, and, and, and it is, it's, you know, I'm borrowing the language of another, uh, more recent, uh, book called uh, The Uncontrollability of the World. I think I referenced it last week and he talks about how our society stabilizes dynamically. If, if growth were curtailed, our society would destabilize. And so we, we, we have created a society that requires continuous growth. Um, and, and that, of course, comes with all, all sorts of problems. Um, and, and I think the question of our complicity, um, I, I, I think this is where, where Illich, in his own intellectual sort of journey, goes from here to examine what he called the certainties, the things we take for granted, the things we believe, the, 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 re, the things we have come to believe about ourselves and, and the world that lead us to not question uh, this mode of life, right? Or not question it deeply enough or to be unable to imagine an alternative. Um, and so in some respects, I think Illich's own writing sort of follows precisely towards that, you know, to, to that question you're raising. You know, why do we come to, to be such complicit, um, so complicit in, in this development? And the, identif- the identification of myths, right? Of cultural myths, um, that order our thinking. Right. That are that are not um, the categories that are not even what we think with, but the conditions of our thinking. And so it's, it's a it's a remarkable sort of effort that's required to sort of get underneath of that for ourselves, because it's, um, you know, if you imagine the difficulty of trying to uh, pull apart the the taken for granted concepts we usually use to think with in order to think about them. And I think this is part of, of Illich's own attempt to kind of get out of the modern world uh, by immersing himself in the 12th century in order to perhaps perceive these even more clearly. Um, any other thoughts or comments? 
Mike, one, one of the things that strikes me, and I feel like I'm at the same place at the end of this class as I was last week at the end of that class, which is um, the feeling that I, I have to almost begin by accepting compromise, mm -hmm. that I am compromised. Yeah. I, I don't have an option that will lift me out of this sure. place that I'm in. And, and I sort of have to start by accepting um, some notion of compromise. I, yeah. I think it's one of the places for me where Wendell Berry has been helpful, um, that he would share a lot of the kind of concerns yeah. that we have in Illich, but he also just sort of says, I mean, his thing about a typewriter and about a chainsaw and, and things, it, it is helpful to sort of start there. I, I, I will say for me, I'd probably substitute the word fear for his word addiction. I think yeah. there's a fear and protection yeah. in me. I'm, yeah. I'm afraid not to have life insurance, afraid not to yes. have health insurance, afraid not to have a car. I, that, that there's a fear yeah. in here. And then the other thought that always strikes me in this is that I, I am convinced that limit is a fundamental good. Right. Not just something to have to learn to live with, but it's a fundamental yes. good. And I think that's one of the most countercultural um, ideas that I struggle with. Yeah. I, I, yeah. That yeah. To embrace limit. Right. Invite it. Absolutely. All of that is correct. You know, and I, and I think even in this rather ambitious sort of uh, um, articulation of an alter alternative political configuration, Illich says, in different societies and cultures will have to decide how to how to transition into a more convivial form of production, recognizing the costs, recognizing the sacrifices, dealing with these questions politically and and calibrating as it were right so that recognition that yes you, you can't just jump into this which at a social level parallels what you're suggesting that we're all enmeshed in these systems um, and so it it will entail some degree of um and I don't even know if compromise is the right word, right? Because I think compromise almost suggests a kind of um, of moral moral culpability, which which may be uh, beside the point here, right? I, I think it's it's a matter of of recognizing our situation, identifying a place to which we want toward which we want to move, uh, and recognizing we cannot just jump there immediately, right? But we need to kind of gradually work our way there, given the constraints. I second your question, your your comment about fear. Um, I think that is, we don't know how to, you know, I, um, I, I would in my own sort of stage of life say, right. I'm, I think I'm afraid of not sending my kids to school. Um, right. Uh, and, and I don't even necessarily mean by that, um, that even if I'm homeschooling them in some sense, I'm still schooling them. Right. Um, and, and, and it will end up in the same place because they'll get their, you know, diploma and they'll take their tests and they'll get into the, it could, even if you'll do it in an alternative way, you'll still end up sort of going through the whole thing. So the idea of not doing that for our children, when that is marked out for us as the path to success, it, it, there is a kind of fear implicit in that. Uh, and then absolutely with regards to limits. Um, I think that's written all over this and, um, and that it is not, I, and I, I, I I would be sorry if I framed it in terms of, of accepting or just having to do with these limits uh, just for the sake of grinning and bearing it and not destroying the planet, but rather that there is, in fact, joy in that and satisfaction. Um, you know, uh, and, and Barry is, is, is absolutely, um, you know, um, 
a kindred spirit uh, for for Illich here. For, and, and, and he has this wonderful line about recognizing limits as the inducements to elaboration uh, within which we can be creative and flourish and, and find joy and satisfaction. Um, yeah, all, all true. Okay, well, I do hope that was helpful. Uh, we'll move on to some new ground uh, next week. And, um, and I look forward to that. So thank you all for joining us again and, um, cheers.